Hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the best insight and analysis in our beautiful game. Special why? Well, because yesterday, thank you to you special people, Transfer Window went through the 2 million listener mark. Quite an incredible achievement. When the two percentile top podcasts in the world. How do, you, how do you feel about that? How do you guys feel about being part of that community? I hope it's as good as we do. I mean, McGarry, and with me, of course, is the two million man himself, Duncan Castles. Duncan, today, as always, it's your questions answered for our listeners a very, very integral part of what has made the podcast such a remarkable success. And again, we say thank you to each and every one of you for your engagement, for joining us in the debate, and for helping us to reach this landmark uh, number in terms of the people listening. We will start, of course, with news as we always do, because we're not ones to lose sight of what we do best, and that is, of course, bring you that information and also tell you what you don't know, hopefully, but then you can talk about with us and your football mates. We start, as usual, with the news, and Manchester United reported the fiscal results for the second quarter of the financial year yesterday. Uh, headlines in those were a substantial downturn in operating profit and also um, a fairly significant hike in the net debt. Of course, uh, those who are um, unhappy with the Glazer family's uh, running uh, of the club will point to the increase in that debt and be worried, indeed, about the uh, the downturn in profit. However, Duncan, um, you're very forensic in the way you read these things. And um, away from those sort of fairly obvious headline figures, I think you probably saw something a lot more subtle, which suggests that maybe it's not all such bad news for United in terms of financial outlay in the coming months. Yeah, look, the financial figures aren't good, as you say, the operating profit down 18% on a, on a six-month basis, total revenue down 11.6%. They're, they're guiding the market, continuing their guidance to the market that they expect their total revenue, which was for the 18-19 season, £627 million, to be down to between 560 and 580 million for um, the full financial year for this full season. So you're looking at a drop of between seven and a half and 10.6%. The market didn't like that. Share price went down 5% yesterday. But from a supporter point of view, these conference calls they do tend to be quite boring and focus on things like the success of the Manchester United app and expanding commercial revenues in China. Um, and there was an element of that, Richard Arnold talking boldly about um, how a signing of Odin Igalo had, had uh, been the top trending item on Twitter um, and beating uh, discussion of, of um, Donald Trump's impeachment and, uh, and Brexit day. But there was also um, a question about how much the club expected to spend on player transfers um, in the coming season with off the back of um, some guidance from the, the club's chief financial officer, Cliff Beatty, um, that they expected their total 
gross spend um, for transfers for this season to be £190 million. And Beatty explains it in a very technical jargon way. We are now projecting committed player capex cash outflows for the full year of approximately £190 million. He was asked by one of the uh, investors um, what that meant for next season. And uh, it's quite a complex, another jargon full answer. But essentially, he's, he said that because of the way they did their deals this year, because they were forced to put more of the money up front into the purchases of Harry Maguire and Aaron Wan-Bissaka um, than they usually do. So not able to spread the transfer fees over the course of the contract in the way they have done with, with um, recent signings. And because um, they had what he calls a deferred receipt profile, i.e. the money they're getting from the biggest deal, Romelu Lukaku, was not coming in one chunk, but be spread out over several seasons. That effectively they'd committed more cash this season than they normally do, and was suggesting that that means um, that in the future they have a bit more headroom to spend on transfers. And he also refers to to what Ed Woodward had been saying about their plans to uh, further improve the squad. So. I guess for Manchester United fans, if you take Beatty at his word, and he he said he didn't want to um, to guide specifically on how much they would they would spend next season, but was indicating that they're in a better place to buy players, that you will see more transfer activity this summer and more money being spent on some of those big deals um, that they've been lining up, um, trying to get individuals um, are talking and, and doing work on individuals like Jack Grealish, who they tried to sign in January and were not backed by Aston Villa, James Madison, Jaden Sancho, who told you on the podcast, they now are probably in the prime position of a Premier League club to get Jaden Sancho because of the way other clubs have acted and the, and the price involved in doing that. Um, then, of course, you have all the 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 question marks over the stuff that Edward were just saying. Um, we have him talking about an overview of the progress towards our number one priority, winning trophies with a team playing entertaining and attacking football. Um, since our last call in November, we've progressed to the knockout stages of the Europa League. We're through to the fifth round of the FA Cup when we remain in the mix to qualify for the Champions League. Talking about um, how many academy players they had in the team, how many minutes were going towards academy players and and uh, and arguing that that showed they had a competitive advantage over their peers because their their investment in the academy had produced um, so many minutes of, of uh, academy developed players in the first team. Um, remember, Paul Pogba will be included as an academy developed player. So he's the most expensive academy developed player in history in that regard, given the money United had to spend to bring him back. Um, some some contradictory stuff where where Woodward um, uh, says despite being linked to 111 players in January our our acquisition of just one of them Bruno Fernandes is, is an important step in that direction he seems to have forgotten that he also signed off on the acquisition of Odion Agallo um, on transfer deadline day. Um, and he summarises by saying, well, we still have much to do. We're progressing with confidence in the right direction. Well, 
are they progressing with confidence in the right direction? So he's talking about exciting attacking football. Are we seeing exciting attacking football on the field? Um, are they getting closer to winning trophies with a team playing entertaining and, and attacking football? Actually, if you do the analysis of, of where they are, in terms of average points return for the Premier League game so far, they're on course for a 58-point season, which will be, by a margin, the worst return of the club's Premier League history. So I think you see again the this kind of delusional um, PR speak about where they're going and the idea that we're now in February, um, we only have... 11 games left um, until the end of Manchester United's Premier League campaign. The idea that you present remaining in the mix to qualify for the Champions League as success and progress, um, I think that's where the concern has to be uh, for Manchester United supporters. And obviously, from the financial perspective, the concern is that that financial power that, that United have had over their rivals is beginning to disappear. And if they don't uh, not just remain in the mix for the, to qualify for the Champions League, but actually qualify for it, then next season's financials are going to get even worse because they will lose significant sponsorship money um, from Adidas uh, because they will have failed to be in the Champions League two, two years running. Um, and you also have to question what effect that will have on their, on their ability to recruit players going forward. Um, can you sell Manchester United as the club you want to come to if you not only aren't in Champions League this year, but the club has a history of failing to, to um, reach the Champions League and clearly isn't competitive for Premier League title? Also the case, Duncan, that for the first time in a long time, Ed Woodward and Richard Arnold, for that matter, um, who are, strictly speaking, financial guys, are having to report directly to investors, and of course the Glazer family, a drop in operational profit, uh, which they themselves admit is likely to continue as well. As we've always said on the podcast, once it starts hitting the pocket, once it starts hitting the share price, that's when the alarm bells will start ringing, because I don't think anyone really believes the Glazers are in this for the glory. They're in it to make money, et cetera, et cetera, if trophies come along the way. And, of course, that means share price goes up, and that's fine. However, um, once it starts to affect, as I said, the financial results, then that's when the guy's in control, and that goes down from the manager and right up to Ed Woodward. Then they've got to start worrying about their own futures. For the moment, it does seem to me that um, two good results against Chelsea and Watford um, takes the pressure off Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the media, that's for sure. But Manchester United have got themselves into such a poor situation with regards to analysis of their performances that it is the case that if they win two games in the trot, people think, OK, well, Ole's probably going to survive. Um, whereas if they lose two or three games, then it, the questions start to surface again. Um, but Woodward nailed his colours to Ole at the wheel uh, during this conversation. And you know, we've got to assume that if he's good for his word, then that will be the case. But of course, if results go badly, then that will obviously easily change. 
I think that's right, Ian. I think it is. It's important to note that a week in which they win at Chelsea um, and do back to back wins over Chelsea for the first time in the Premier League, and managed to beat Watford with a kind of a, a performance that um, Solskjaer himself said started as a shambles, and draw one one at Club Brugge. Um, playing pretty poor football is regarded as a success, regarded as as a positive. Um, Contrast that with the expectations around Manchester United when Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge of the club. One other thing that I I neglected to mention about the financials is despite profits going down, despite revenue going down, um, the club decided to maintain the dividend that was paid to shareholders, which of course uh, means that the Glazer family take more money out of Manchester United, regardless of the fact that it is failing to perform as a as a business in the way it had in the past, and and that obviously should also be and and has long been a concern for Manchester United supporters. Indeed, and we have uh, our first question from at uh, Tom. MUFC8, Tom Simpson. Tom, thanks very much for your question. You've actually got two here. One, um, you've compared clean sheets by Manchester United against the big clubs in Europe. I'm just going to read this particular one because it takes it back, us back to the pitch as well. Um, taking away the price tag and looking solely on pitch contribution, are you, and I think he means Duncan more than anyone else here, but I'm happy to chip in, willing to accept that Harry Maguire has improved the centre of defence at Manchester United. Again... No money top, no Virgil van Dijk comparison, just has the player improved United's defence. Duncan, are you willing to defend Harry or um, do we still have some concerns? He's, he's obviously improved Manchester United's defence. I mean, that's that's not been in question as well, whether you've improved the centre defence that wasn't um, was been a problem issue for some time. Uh, the the point is, it wasn't particularly hard to improve the centre of defence, and you can't extract away the cost of acquiring the most expensive centre back in the history of football and say, oh well, we'll ignore that we paid eighty five million pounds for him and gave him a hugely lucrative contract because he's made things better. That the the assessment we always try and do in the transfer window podcast is have the club spent the money well? Was this a sensible investment? Has uh, has that investment been returned to the extent of the cash that was put into it? And clearly it hasn't. Harry Maguire um, is not an £85 million centre-back. Um, he's not suddenly discovered the pace that we said was an issue when he signed. He's not stopped making um, unnecessary errors in the game. I mean, we're talking about the Chelsea match and the, and the relative success of, of, uh, of, of Manchester United's past week. Harry Maguire should have been sent off after 22 minutes of the Chelsea match. Manchester United should have been playing without their £85 million defender for the majority of that game, a game that was key to them remaining within the mix, as uh, as Ed Woodward likes to put it, for the Champions League places. He should have been suspended for three matches. Um, extremely fortunate to get away with that. And, and that is a mark of his 
qualities as a defender and you should roll that into the assessment of whether it was a good idea to bring him. Imagine the, the, the perception of Maguire and the extra pressure that would be upon him had he been sent off as he should have been sent off in that game and had it cost them two points or, or three points. Um, you, you can't say, oh, he got lucky in that game and we'll just ignore it. Uh, um, and 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 say he's improved. He's improved the defence, which had significant problems in it. Therefore, um, it was a good purchase, and he is a good football player. We are talking when we talk about Manchester United's defence of um, one of the most expensive defensive defences in history. Now you've got Luke Shaw, who was a record signing at fullback. You have Aaron Bissaka, who was also a record signing as a specialist fullback when he came in. Um, Harry Maguire record signing as a centre back, um, and David de Gea on the the biggest contract in the Premier League. Um, there's an immense amount of investment in that starting back four. Seen people and and um, you know Tom presents an image of this that that Manchester United have the second highest number of clean sheets. Um, of teams who've been competing in Europe this season, and they've got 17 clean sheets, and I think. Paris Saint-Germain are on 22 um, clean sheets uh, at present. Uh, Liverpool also in 17, Atletico in 16. Well, yeah, look, superficially that looks good, but let's look at some of those clean sheets. Manchester United are the only club in there who are playing in the Europa League. Five of the clean sheets came in the Europa League group stage, so one against Astana two against Alkmaar, one of which was in a game in which Manchester United didn't manage to have a single shot on target, two against Partizan. They've had one clean sheet against a League Two side, Colchester, in the Cup, one against Tranmere, a League One side. They couldn't manage to keep out the other League One side, um, Rochdale they played at home in the League Cup. Another of their clean sheets came in a game against Manchester City, which sounds impressive until you note that they actually were knocked out of the League Cup having got that clean sheet. So Manchester City didn't need to score against them in that match. Um, They're getting lots of clean sheets by playing with a low block and playing often regularly setting up with a five-man back line, which is something that would have been anathema to... Um, Sir Alex Ferguson, particularly in home games. So, you know, Solskjaer is playing a back five at Old Trafford on a regular basis. Three of those clean sheets came in nil-nils. So that gives you more of a perspective on on that statistic. The reason they're getting lots of clean sheets is they're uh, essentially quite a stodgy defensive team trying to play on the counter-attack. And it's hardly a mark of success that you have lots of clean sheets and you're on track for your worst ever points return in the Premier League, and so far still alive in the Europa League, the, the you know the secondary European competition. Um, so yeah, Harry Maguire has he improved things? Yes. Was he a good signing for Manchester United? No. So you've answered Tom's question very well, Duncan. Given that we also spoke briefly before about investment this summer, how do United go about improving that expensive defence? Is it one signing away from being you know, any good or even excellent? Or do you think it needs more than that? Um, 
Aaron Wan-Bissaka, I think, has been the biggest improvement to the defence. He's a, he's a very, very good one-on-one defender. Um, positionally a little suspect, but I think he's improving in that regard. Uh, there were question marks about his ability to attack and provide assists. I also see him improving in that regard. I see him putting better balls into the box. So I think they, they you know, they they've come to an expensive solution there, but it is actually a, a sustainable solution. Um, Luke Shaw, I, I think if you, if you were to look at that rationally and you had um, good resources to work with, you would want to upgrade there. Harry Maguire, as I've said, is a mistake. Um, they've got the goalkeeper, they can hang on to the goalkeeper, very difficult to improve on him. Um, at the the kind of prices you're looking at for goalkeepers, you could you could, and I think this is where they will have to go if they want to upgrade the defence. Um, put a higher quality centre back in beside Maguire, and and he will need to be quick. You need to be very quick to compensate for Maguire's um, lack of pace and uh, and his positional errors. You can also improve. I think by setting the team up differently. So they, they've conceded a lot of goals from set pieces this season. And they've conceded a lot of goals by using a you know, hybrid um, zonal defence in, in certain areas. So he, there, there's definitely a coaching element and a managerial strategic element where you can add quality to the defence without spending any money. But that might require a different manager to be in charge. I don't think there's many United fans who would disagree with you, Duncan, on a pacey centre-back to accompany Maguire if that's going to be a successful partnership for next season and competing in the big competitions. From one current Manchester United manager in Solskjaer to his predecessor in Jose Mourinho, a lot of you have been asking questions um, regarding Jose's performance at Spurs, um, especially in light of the defeat at Chelsea. And the fact that Frank Lampard, indeed, his protégé, is now the first coach to do the double over his uh, mentor in the Premier League uh, in Josie's time in the competition. We'll come to Lampard later, Duncan. I've got two questions, one from Sammy, 1679, and one from Tom Sharman at Tom Sharman 8. Uh, I'll go for... um, yeah, I'm going to go for Tom's first, Tom Sharman. He says, what's going wrong for Josie Mourinho at Spurs? Why is, more, why is he money about injuries and not trying a different approach to get better results, play better football? Well, what's going wrong for him at Tottenham? How, how wrong is Mourinho's management actually been in terms of results? If you go and look at what he has returned as Premier League manager of Tottenham, it's eight wins out of 15 since he was brought in to replace Maurizio Pochettino. Not brilliant, but actually um, he's taken more points over the period in which he's been in charge than every other manager in the Premier League apart from Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp. So if you are able to extrapolate that across the course of a season, um, Tottenham would be third and comfortably qualifying for the Champions League. Now, Obviously, that's unfair to extrapolate across the course of a season from just 15 games. 
but you've also got to say he's uh, he's had significant handicaps to deal with and that his goalkeeper um, was out for a significant period when he came into the club. Um, he's lost Musa Sissoko, an important midfielder, for a significant period. Obviously lost Harry Kane for what we expect to be half the season and recently lost Son Kyung Ming um, for what he expects to be the rest of the season and doesn't have any um, experienced strikers to play with. Um, we're talking about a team that under the previous manager won just six of the last 24 Premier League games. So the the standard comparison is Mourinho's taken over a team that reached the Champions League final last year um, and they don't look like they're going to reach the Champions League final this time and they're playing uh, quite stodgy football. Therefore, he is a, and you hear this phrase used, he's a Neanderthal manager who, um, who is not going to be able to improve the way Tottenham perform. Well, he has improved the way Tottenham perform and if you look at results um, there were periods in which he's been in charge and think which I think they played pretty good football and you saw um, a, a, an ability on the counter-attack um, that was quite impressive and looked like it would uh, be the basis of something that could do well not just in the Premier League and the Champions League he's now moved to playing very defensively uh, and trying to come up with a structure to get through um, the games he's he's been faced with, and and sometimes it's worked. He, he's managed to beat Manchester City. He got close to getting a result against Liverpool. Other times it hasn't worked. Lost to RB Leipzig. Lost two games to to Chelsea. But in terms of the overall pattern of results, if you look at those and and the and the statistics, they're, they're actually suggest he's doing not badly, but not great. Um, it's difficult to see him getting them to play better football until he has better resources to work with. I don't think he, it's unfair of him to complain when he doesn't have his, uh, his two best forwards. It might annoy people that he moans so much in press conferences. Perhaps it, it would do him some favours if he, if he didn't come into every press conference after he lost the game and remind people about uh, the, the handicaps he had to work with. But he also, I think it's pretty fair to say, he gets heavier criticism than any other manager in these circumstances. And he is put on the back foot and he is asked to defend um, his decisions and performances and results in a way other managers aren't, that the extent of the criticism is greater for him. Therefore, you, from, a, from a purely psychological point of view, you can, you can understand to a certain extent why he behaves in the way he does, whether it's a clever thing to do or not. Um, I think we see the full test, the proper test, once he has a pre-season, once he, he has the opportunity to, to work with a a close to fully fit squad and a rested squad and to to train them and prepare them in the way he would like to do. And and we'll see what he can deliver on the pitch um, with this Tottenham squad working in tandem with Daniel Levy after that happens. 
you know, we've said from the very start of, of his appointment that this is that the it's not difficult to predict where where um, problems might occur and where conflict might occur between him and Daniel Levy and and how um, if he is too defensive in his football over a sustained period of time, both the media and Tottenham, some Tottenham fans, will be unhappy with that. But the the judgment, I think, after fifteen games in which his performance is actually third best in the Premier League in terms of pure results, uh, that he's finished as a manager and is doing a bad job at Tottenham really doesn't hold water. Certainly true that um, there's more of a cue to criticise Mourinho uh, in the media than it seems to be any other coach. And, you know, being a victim of your own success is no stranger uh, to Mourinho in terms of his full career, not just his career in England. But um, I agree with you, Duncan, that there is definitely uh, you know, more of a reason for him to be defensive when it comes to, to questioning um, about form. Um, Sammy at 1679 asks a bit of a more different question, Mourinho, and, and do we think he'll ever be able to compete? At the back end, as he says, meaning, of course, I, I'm assuming quarter, semi-finals, final of the Champions League um, ever again. Or could we see him managing Portugal in the 2022 World Cup or indeed the 2024 European Championships? Well, Portugal's plan for the 2022 World Cup is to stay with the coach they have at the moment, Fernando Santos, who obviously won the last Euros and goes into this summer as defending champions. Um, they have a very talented group at present and they have what they feel is a new golden generation um, coming through the, the under-21 level at present who they feel are going to be ready for that 2022 World Cup and they think it, it represents their best chance ever of winning a World Cup. And, and the strategic plan is to keep the current coach uh, and have him bring those players through and see what they can achieve at, at that um, tournament. Mourinho definitely wants to manage Portugal at some time in, in his career. He's, he's very open about that. Uh, he's talked about it many times. And um, I'd be very surprised if it doesn't happen at a certain point. But um, I don't, unless Portugal have a disastrous Euros, this summer, I don't see him being a, a realistic candidate for 2022 World Cup. And, and I don't think he really sees himself as being Portugal coach at that stage. I think he, 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 he definitely feels he has something to give and to prove to critics in club football. Um, and he sees Tottenham as a platform to do that. Um, as, as to the question of whether I see him competing again in the, the Champions League in the, the knockout stage, it's true that um, it's a long time since uh, he's been successful in the, the knockout stages of the Champions League, but actually it's quite a long time since Pep Guardiola has been successful in the knockout stages of the Champions League. So he's, he's not the only um, elite coach who has suffered that problem. Um, I think... He certainly has the capability of doing well in that competition if he's furnished with a squad that is ready to um, to have a, a fair chance of competing against opponents. He still has the tactical nous required uh, to beat particular opponents in a given situation. 
he has a lot of similarities in the way he coaches and sets up teams to Diego Simeone. Um, and there's a, fa- a, a fantastic statistic about Simeone that came out recently that the, the only time he has ever lost um, Champions League knockout games in his entire career as a coach were against teams that included Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, that might be about to change. He is going to Liverpool. He's going to Anfield. He's going to the European champions. If there's ever a time when that statistic gets turned, that will be the time for it to happen. But um, he is still certainly able to compete at the back end of the, of the Champions League using a style of football that many people, um, if when Mourinho applies it, describe as Neanderthal and uh, from the last decade, if not the last century. So let's see what what happens. Let's see um, how he does with Tottenham. Um, I I think, as I said, when he got the job, I think there is the essence of an attacking group there who could be very effective in the Champions League if Son and um, Harry Kane are fit. And they are backed up with a stronger midfield. Um, and he manages to get the defensive organisation correct at Tottenham, um, which I think requires a personnel changes as well and obviously requires um, Hugo Lloris to, to stay fit. Indeed. Um, and I can only add uh, in a short answer to Sam's question regarding Portugal and Jose. I did once ask him that very question, uh, did he see that as an attractive proposition? And he said, have you been to Florida? And I said, yes. Have you been? <laughs> and he said, yes. Florida is nice. Florida is warm. Florida is comfortable. Florida doesn't offer many challenges. Do you know why? And I said, why? He said, because everyone goes there to retire. So when I go to Portugal job, maybe I'll go because it's nice for me to retire. So there you go. That's uh, Jose's view on uh, Portugal stroke Florida. On to a last question for today's Your Questions Answered. Very topical, Duncan. We already briefly mentioned the defeat suffered uh, by Liverpool, by Tottenham Hotspur, um, and by Chelsea in the Champions League first round uh, of knockout stage. Uh, of course, round of 16. This question refers to Chelsea. It's from Matteo Itzioli. And he says, after the latest in a long line of humiliations for Frank Lampard, and Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Of course, uh, Matteo is referring to a run, a very bad run, I think worse since 1985, uh, of results, defeats at home. Do the guys think Abramovich might be getting twitchy fingers? Now, obviously, Matteo is referring to um, uh, his uh, pearl-handed revolver with regards to managers and not perhaps uh, too many cups of um, espresso, Duncan. Um do you think there's any chance that Roman Abramovich is looking at Frank and thinking maybe he wasn't the right appointment? Well, Roman Abramovich usually gets twitchy fingers when, when things start to go wrong. He's not a man to tolerate bad results for very long. And uh, I think uh, Chelsea are now on eight home defeats this season already, which is a remarkable number given how um, strong they've been at the bridge in, in past years. I, I think that the, the individual that that Lampard has to be most worried about is Marina Granovskaya. Um, as we detailed on the podcast, there was essentially a conflict between Granovskaya and Lampard over the, the January transfer market when 
Chelsea had a lot of money available to them to spend. When Lampard wanted reinforcements, when Granovskaya wanted to spend money on the team and, and uh, was uh, working on, on certain deals that um, Lampard wasn't happy with, you ended up in this standoff where nobody came into the club. I think Lampard basically tested um, his strength against Granovskaya in that market and at best it came out as a, as a goalless draw. Um, if Granovskaya continues to have doubts about Lampard and he continues um, to have this um, lack of success in home matches and more importantly, should that translate into uh, missing out in the Champions League, then the chances of Abramovich being encouraged to twitch those fingers are um, certainly greater. And I, I think um, Lampard has a, a great interest himself in finding out um, what Abramovich's current thinking on the matter is. Um, certainly not been a good start to 2020. If you look at victories, the only teams they've beaten are Tottenham, um, the most significant of those results and important ones. And then the rest are against Nottingham Forest in the Cup, Burnley and Hull in the Cup. It's not, it's not a great line of scalps. Um, I think he's, he's under pressure. Um, and uh, I think he's aware he's under pressure. And I think he's aware that they need to improve performances and, more importantly, improve results in this tail end of the season because Champions League is gone for them now. Um, getting into next season's Champions League is going to be a mark of whether this is a, regarded as a, as a successful first season for Chelsea or not. And, and the, the Champions League performances are interesting because not only have the, the three uh, English clubs all lost so far with Manchester City playing Real Madrid tonight and what will be a fascinating game to see how motivated and focused the players, Manchester City players are um, to shove UEFA's uh, Champions League ban in their faces and, and try and go all the way in this season's competition. But not only have, have those three all lost, they haven't scored a goal yet in the Champions League. And that maybe puts a bit of context on to what we've been saying for quite a while now, that this Premier League season is a very odd season and, and the, the majority of the big six teams are performing at a historically poor level. Um, Lampard's in position to qualify despite having lost I think nine um, Premier League games already um, he's in position with 44 points uh, Manchester United are fifth with 41 points while being as I said earlier in the podcast on, on route for the lowest ever Premier League points return so I think it tells you something about the quality of where the Premier League is at the moment. I think it's something we need to bring into that discussion about how great this Liverpool team is because we're, we're going to hear more and more commentary about this being the greatest Premier League team ever because of their outstanding and, and record-breaking uh, sequence of, of wins um, and their, what is going to happen, which will uh, be the earliest uh, Premier League whenever. But all of these things have to be judged against what the competition was like. And certainly for the majority of the big six teams, the competition has been poorer than it's been for quite a long time. I think, Duncan, you're correct in calling that um, 
Roland Bramwich's thoughts, if you like, on Lampard's season, which I'm certain will not uh, be asked for or called upon uh, until indeed the season's over and the coach can be judged on the team's um, performances, whether it's winning trophies or making Champions League, etc., uh, for next season. But something that Lampard has it that very few other people have is an understanding of how Abramovich's mind and his modus operandi, how they actually function um, through all of his time as a player. I mean, this is a guy who was trusted enough for um, to receive phone calls um, from one of the very, very trusted confidants of Abramovich um, and say, are you home? Roman would like to come and see you uh, in half an hour to ask a bit about the team. And Frank, of course, if he wasn't at home, would rush home and get the tea on uh, and nail Samovar for uh, when Roman come, came round. And he would sit there and answer questions, detailed questions. Why does Aryan Robin fall over so much? Why does Damien Duff not release the ball quickly enough? When Abramovich was learning about football, he wanted to learn from Frank. And that is a relationship which continued between the player and the owner of the club throughout his time there. And I'm sure has continued since his time there as a coach as well. Not obviously the learning process, but the, the ability for both men to plug in and have a proper download on what's currently going on. Uh, so I think there's going to be something there's something different about Lampard's stewardship of Chelsea, which uh, was obviously not available or afforded to his predecessors. And that is that relationship that he has with the owner, um, trusted relationship uh, over the course uh, of, uh, it'll be coming up on 17 years now, obviously minus the couple of years he spent away from Chelsea. So I think that that probably answers uh, our, our Matteo's question um, robustly enough for this moment in time. And we just say, Matteo, stick around and uh, we will bring you all of the answers and information we get come the end of the season based on the team's performance and based on the opinions of both Marina Granovskaya and, of course, Roman Abramovich and those around him who take decisions on who becomes the next manager and, indeed, if Lampard stays, which at this moment in time, I believe, I don't think there's any particular danger uh, in that sense. This, of course, is Wednesday's Transfer Window podcast, which means we will end it in fitting uh, two million listener style with a donkey award. Uh, I was tempted to give it to Duncan himself, uh, obviously into the, the team, but uh, we're not that conceited. We're instead uh, going to hand it out to yet another lucky recipient. Uh, and of course, we have a fantastic, um, uh, well, let's give you first of all the category and then we'll give you the nominations. So based on the um, statement of Mr. Richard Arnold of Manchester United um, during the uh, release of fiscal results this uh, week. Um, he said about the transfer of um, the former Watford player on loan from China, Odin Agallo. Shortly after we concluded that loan deal for Agallo, the news was uh, the top trend worldwide on Twitter. Now, um, I think all of you are aware that that particular comment has since been ridiculed widely on social media. In fact, the very Twitter that Richard referred to. So uh, we're going to award the Richard Arnold um, donkey 
for the uh, most silly or indeed ridiculous statement about your, or his, in this case, football club. First up, Duncan, um, let me just uh, open the, the golden envelope and then we can get down to there go. the actual nominations. Oh, yes, very esteemed company this week. First up, first up, first up on the uh, the roster, Gary Cook. Does everyone remember Gary Cook, former chief executive of Manchester City, who uh, boasted to a fans forum in New York early on in uh, his time as chief executive. Um, I won't go through the whole quote, but it is certainly very uh, interesting. This football club, without doubt, is going to be the biggest and best in the world. I'll make no excuses for saying it. I truly believe it with the resources and capabilities we have. Um, perhaps would be called as a witness or um, testimonial in the CAS appeal, just so everyone knows. Duncan, the second one is uh, Ed Woodward. Uh, I'll let you perhaps uh, explain the full quote, but um, my favourite line has to be, uh, we're represented in more countries now than McDonald's. I don't know if that says more about uh, Ed Woodward's dietary habits than it does about Manchester United. However, uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave that with one for the moment. And the third is um, Sir Kenneth, who, in response to um, his Liverpool team when he was managed them in the wake of the Luis Suarez racism row with Patrice Ever, which, if you remember, Ever was, uh, was found guilty of racist, racially abusing. Evra and uh, given a lengthy ban. Um, before that ban was uh, actually handed out and the players all wore loose Suarez T-shirts, Tuglish said, I think the boys showed their respect and admiration for Louise with wearing the T-shirts. It's a great reflection of the man as a character, a person and a footballer. Duncan, I'll leave it over to you to hand out the two million listener Richard Arnold Award for most, uh, well, let's just call it silly things said about his football club. Um, not a surprise that Gary Cook is in there. He had uh, quite a history of uh, of uh, amusing um, and uh, somewhat embarrassing statements in his time as Manchester City chief executive. Um, biggest and best football club in the world. They haven't got there yet. Maybe, maybe he knew what Abu Dhabi planned to do, and uh, this would have been before financial fair play kicked in properly, and and he felt that they could buy themselves the biggest and and best football club in the world. They've had a they've had a good go at it. They do have the most expensive team squad in the history of the game, but um, the best football club in the world, I think um, UEFA and, uh, and their, uh, their competitors and, and supporters of other clubs would suggest that uh, their behaviour um, indicates that you can't describe them as the best football club in the world. So bad, bad call on that one. It would be nice to give Ed Woodward um, the Richard Arnold Award, those two being such good friends and so important to the Glazers' astounding success as, as owners of, of Manchester United. Um, it is quite a remarkable quote. This is from 2014, um, during Lou van Gaal's first pre-season at Manchester United. He says, it's the biggest club in the world. We are represented in more countries now than McDonald's. Stats like that I love. 
it's a huge honour to be in this role. This is the biggest sports team in the world, not just the biggest football team. And uh, talking about attracting players and what they were going to do under Van Hal, he said, we're still a huge attraction to top football stars around the world. There's no doubt about that. I hope fans will see the direction we're heading in with the new manager, coaching staff and players and a commitment to do what it takes to get back to the top. Now, that was 2014, listeners. Sounds quite similar to what Edward was saying in 2020, doesn't it? Um, Duncan, I'm not familiar with um, McDonald's as a menu. Just, you know, it's more my own life choice. Uh, I'm not criticising because I don't know. I've never been there. But when he says things like, stats like that I love is that something that's on the menu stats <laughs> I think I think people who eat a lot of McDonald's sometimes have to take statins so I guess you could argue oh, that oh is that maybe that's what it is okay okay very good very good <laughs> um, but even Ed can't win this one I think I think uh, if we're talking about statements that embarrass your football club Kenny Dugleish, um wins this one hands down with that attempt to um, back and support Luis Suarez um, over what was indefensible behaviour. Um, I think he, uh, you know, embarrassed his players, he embarrassed the club, um, and uh, yeah, this one's no competition. Uh, Kenny Dalglish in Liverpool will win Richard Arnold uh, two million transfer window podcast award. Well. A landmark day for us, a landmark day for Richard Arnold, his first donkey. Um, and before all our Liverpool fan listeners get onto us and join the debate, as we like to politely call it when they do, um, to criticise us for criticising their hero, Sir Kenneth, please remember that Jamie Carragher apologised on live television to um, Patrice Evra not so long ago for those T-shirts and for that particular rather... Um, you know, dark little chapter in the history of Liverpool FC. Um, so uh, just bear that in mind, please, before you start bombarding us. But please do engage. We like that. Of course we do. This has been your questions answered. If you want to continue the debate with Duncan and I with the Transfer Window Podcast, you can do so on all of our social media channels. That's at Transfer Podcast on Twitter also on Facebook and on Instagram. We have Duncan.Castles on Instagram. Duncan's also on Facebook and, of course, at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at GarboSJ on Twitter if you want to get in touch. And if you want to uh, increase and help us to increase this obviously ever-expanding audience, which we are grateful to you without your listening, then, you know, the transfer podcast would be a very poor place, wouldn't it? Because you guys are the ones that help make it what it is. You obviously like what you're hearing. If you do, give us a wee pat on the back. Get onto iTunes uh, and give us a five-star review. And that, as you all have been doing, helps us to expand the community, as you know. That's all for today's podcast on Wednesday. However, the two million listen rated Thinking Fans podcast... We'll be back on Friday. Until then, thanks for listening.